0: Hello, everybody. It's yours truly, Mark Jarrett, and welcome back to the Marxism Podcast. My podcast, my isms, my ideas, but the world's stories. For today's episode, I've been joined by my friend Phil Rafalco to discuss the recent news on Donald Trump declaring Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel only a few days ago, as well as wanting to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. Now... I wanted to bring Phil on this episode because only a few months ago he wrote about this exact topic when we both were interns at the NATO Association of Canada. This is also uh, a topic somewhat related to his master's thesis, Uh, and he has also both traveled to Israel and Palestine and knows a ton about Israeli and Palestinian relations. So without further ado, Phil, thanks for coming to join us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Phil, how did this come about, this particular issue was a long time coming, correct?
1: Yeah, so two points I want to make. First, that this has been a long time coming. And second, that uh, we have to look at this primarily through a lens of domestic politics in both Israel and in the U.S., rather than just uh, looking at it as American foreign policy, which I think it's really just a slightly more aggressive continuation of the same foreign policy to go to the first point real quick you know this has been happening since the early days of settlement in the land of israel and palestine uh the zionist settlers coming from europe uh forming a jewish national identity in the land of palestine which it was formally called when it was ruled uh as a british colony prior to 1948 at the same time you had arabs uh competing over the same land with their own distinct national claim over the land. So there's that precedent that is now more than a century old. So in that sense, it's been a very long time coming. But if you look at it even in terms of American policy specifically, the Congress under Bill Clinton's first presidency in 1995 signed an act that would declare the formal intent to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, why is this important? Currently, no other country has an embassy in Jerusalem. There were actually up to, I believe, 14, 15, or 16 countries that did have embassies in Jerusalem that have mostly moved since the 80s and by the 2000s had all moved into Tel Aviv. And the reason for this is because Israel's occupation of the West Bank is seen as illegal under the Fourth Geneva Convention. Uh, It is a territory that is considered being occupied by, in wartime, by an external power, which is the state of Israel. And so even though the state of Palestine is not formally recognized by the entire international community, it is recognized as contested territory. And so the partition plan originally for israel and palestine in 1947 by the new united nations at the time new basically wanted to split the country and make jerusalem an international city one that would not be contested uh, which was a very creative idea at the time and it was something that would have cemented the formation of a new truly global order uh, as opposed to one of nation states This, of course, as we know, didn't pan out. And so the newer two-state solution basically advocated for West Jerusalem to remain part of Israel and East Jerusalem to become part of the new Palestinian state. However, since 1980, Israel has constitutionally recognized all of a united Jerusalem to be Israel's undivided capital. And the municipality of Jerusalem actually exercises de facto control over the entire territory of jerusalem including many jewish settlements in what the international community considers to be palestinian territory so basically no other country recognizes the claim of israel to all of jerusalem right Uh, that's why this is a big deal and the u.s has been wanting because it's israel's closest ally wanting to cement the legitimacy of its claim to Jerusalem but the you know the forces of international liberalism that have kind of upheld the international agreements uh, you know been major proponents of the two-state solution you know all the way back going to the 70s 80s 90s Jimmy Carter Reagan everyone mm-hmm. Democrat or Republican has basically upheld this um, two-state solution model Based on the original partition plan, but with some modifications to account for new developments, such as the Oslo Accords in the 90s.
0: So in regards to uh, Jerusalem being such a holy place to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, um, of course, violence within that area would you know, be frowned upon. How is conflict going to pan out between Israel and Palestine over Jerusalem?
1: So right now, there's a problem because, as you mentioned, uh, many of the most important holy sites for all of the Abrahamic religions are located in Jerusalem, specifically in the Old City of Jerusalem. And now, thankfully, they're actually administered independently. Um, There is, for example, Muslim quarter of the Old Town is not administered by Palestine or anything like that. It's a completely independent clerical administration rather than a political one. And so that gives some degree of legitimacy to the religious claims on the area. But in terms of the political claims, uh, the fear right now is that there will be violence. And so right now what's going to happen, I think, is that the extremists on all sides, and this is not to say that there are only two sides, because I think there fundamentally is such a huge diversity of interests and experiences in this small land that makes it so interesting. Generally, the Zionist settler extremists and the Palestinian Islamist and nationalist extremists and not just Palestinian but Arabs around the region are going to Benefit the most from this because they are going to foment violence They are going to foment active resistance. So for example Hamas has come out against this very abruptly They have urged the government in the West Bank of the Palestinian Authority which is recognized as the official government of Palestine, even though Hamas technically rules over Gaza. And this is because the West Bank and Gaza are so physically separated that it's pretty much impossible for one government to exert control over both of the two territories. But anyway, Hamas has urged Fatah, the government in the West Bank, to renounce its formal recognition of the state of Israel because Hamas has never formally recognized the state of Israel They do not recognize the existence of a Jewish people in the land of Palestine, Mm -hmm. Um, and they basically want to go to pre-Oslo. Oslo Oslo is kind of the slang term for all of the diplomatic negotiations, uh, starting with a group of secret conferences in Oslo in the early 90s, for basically trying to come with an effective two-state solution, and it got pretty close. But, Hamas has urged for another intifada. And now for those of you who don't know, an intifada is a mass uprising. It consists of many different tactics, violent and nonviolent, but it is basically a full-frontal assault. General strikes to disrupt the Israeli economy because much of Israel's economy relies on cheap labor from Palestine, uh, violent tactics including terrorism and mm-hmm. You know, the Second Intifada saw basically full-out war between Israel and Palestine. Thousands of civilians were killed when the Israeli military unleashed its full force in order to combat Palestinian terrorism that was going into Israel. Uh, So bombs were going off in Israeli cities. Civilians were dying at rates, when you look per capita, were much higher than terrorist attacks going on right now in the west and in exchange you know civilian homes were being destroyed were being many buildings were being raised by the israeli air force uh, tanks were roaming the streets of the west bank etc
0: right uh historically it seems like palestine has been left alone to fight for itself uh from this move by trump claiming that jerusalem is the capital of israel and moving the american embassy to jerusalem are there going to be other arab nations going to intervene to support and help out palestine in any way
1: that's a good question um my fear is that they won't my fear is that as i said before the most radical elements that are mostly relegated to non-state actors and institutions basically organizations that exist outside of you know countries and governments Uh, but that have significant political power nonetheless, such as Hamas in Gaza, such as Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, which we need to be constantly reminded is heavily influenced and funded by Iran uh, for mostly geopolitical reasons. But of course, you know, they them being also Shia Muslims is Mm. part of that inter-Islamic conflict as well. So there's multiple dimensions to this. But anyways, again, my fear is that even though Many Muslim uh, Middle Eastern countries have come out against this decision of uh, President Trump's. My fear is that they will not have any active intervention on a political or diplomatic level that can act as a deterrent or as a countermeasure to more direct, active, and probably hostile actions that will take place in Israel and Palestine now. So, for example, Saudi Arabia has come out against this, you know, declaration of President Trump's, but will it really change the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia? Well, history, even recent history, shows us that despite Saudi Arabia's gross human rights violations, mm-hmm. um, despite them misusing arms that have been sold to them from right, yeah. the U.S. and Canada, um, and using them to suppress domestic uprisings uprisings is a strong word you know domestic opposition and also you know mass civilian bombings in Yemen uh, which you touched on in your own podcast earlier despite all these things the relationship remains quite strong Mm -hmm. and so again to summarize I really fear that there won't be an active deterrent against violent measures that are taken in order to combat what is seen as basically this hopeless situation where regular political channels are not seen as effective in bringing about the change that the Palestinian people want to see.
0: Right. Yeah, that's uh that's a good point. I you've have, you've have no idea how what this might shape in regards to U.S.'s involvement in other Middle Eastern countries. However, what do you think about um how much do you think is going to change between Israel and Palestine? Could it get worse? Israel already has a massive wall that separates Jerusalem and Bethlehem, as an example, restricting mobilization of Palestinians. What what more is going to come to this? I mean, it feels like every measure has been taken. So what do you think? I mean, it always feels like
1: every measure has been taken. You know, that's the really interesting thing about this uh, region and studying its history and its politics. and. Why I've become so fascinated with it, because you have so many basically ad hoc measures that become institutions of their own. You know, the wall that you mentioned was only conceived in the early 2000s, but it's now become very definite presence in the lives of both Israelis and Palestinians. More so the Palestinians, from what I've seen and experienced myself, and from studying, you know, scholars in both Israel and Palestine, and from just talking to people who live there... The way Israelis express it seems to be that they see it as an inconvenience to the Palestinian people, whereas the Palestinians themselves in Bethlehem see it as a major disruptive force to their daily lives because Mm -hmm. many Palestinians work in Israel. You know, they cross the border every day to work there. And so here's an interesting fact. What has been part of Israel's core defensive strategy has been to use the land itself as a strategic factor. And so, for example, they use the hills. And they always put their settlements on the highest hills in right, yeah. the West Bank so that they can see the land around them and make sure that they can uh, exert this kind of
0: force. It's, it's symbolic. Yes, it's honest. it's
1: symbolic power. It goes back to uh, yeah. Foucault's idea of the panopticon, for example, or the way he popularized it when talking about prisons. Basically, this uh, force of surveillance and the feeling of being controlled, even if you're not being controlled directly. So basically, when you're in Israel, you can see over the wall. Uh, The wall's not that close to you in most cases. There is a highway on the other side of the wall, and it's kind of downhill. But when you're in Bethlehem, and now, granted, if this wall wasn't there, Bethlehem and Jerusalem would be almost contiguous, or at least East Jerusalem. So when you're in Bethlehem, you cannot see on the other side of the wall. You're at the bottom of the hill. The wall itself is really interesting because it's become this um, life... test almost, right? Yes, it's become a mural. It's become one of the largest embodied artistic experiences. And so you get tons of people voicing tons of different opinions and experiences on this wall. One thing that really resonated me was this picture, this painting of a dove with a target, like a sniper target on it, kind of showing that peace is the enemy and peace is always under attack. The people that want peace are actually, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian, whether they're left or right, the people who genuinely care about peace are, they're on the opposing side. Right. And the, the extremists on both sides, the settlers who are in themselves terrorists when they violently attack Palestinians in the West Bank, and then also Palestinian terrorists when they cross into Israel, especially before the wall was there, to blow up bombs. Not to say that they can do that that much anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole side discussion there about the use of force and the symbolic resistance of throwing stones. Um, Many Palestinians are seen as terrorists simply for throwing stones at the Israeli military because that's all they have, where as even Israeli civilians are allowed and often are armed with automatic weapons. And just, you know, every now and then they they use them against Palestinian civilians. And so when you create the wall in the West Bank, you're kind of reinforcing that power dynamic.
0: Right. Back to that dove being under attack by, you know, the sniper fire. Would you classify Trump as kind of being the sniper in that situation against peace?
1: Well... Trump himself L- it's almost his recent d- move, yeah. It's right. almost impossible to know what Trump himself really thinks. I don't tend to think about what he directly says. Right. I like to look at what's going on around him. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve Bannon infamously said Trump is a convenient vessel. Hmm. Um he, of course, if you don't know Steve Bannon, was a former chief editor of Breitbart News, which is commonly regarded as and far-right or alt-right news outlet that does provocative media statements so when you look at the people around trump this goes back to one of the main points i wanted to make at the beginning which was that you have to look at domestic politics trump's base uh, has courted many people who have strong zionist tendencies it has courted evangelical christians uh, highly conservative jews who, despite the anti-Semitism within Trump's base, still welcome the kind of nationalist aspect because it plays into the agenda that they have with constantly supporting Israel and making sure that the, um, not to say that support of Israel in itself is the problem, but the, the fact that they want to push the U.S. to support Israel to the detriment of the Palestinian people, is uh, the issue at play here. So basically, that tendency has always existed. You know, you have the Israel lobby, you have AIPAC that has existed for a while. It's been firmly institutionalized in American politics. Many senior diplomats, John Kerry, for example, has spoken at APAC. You know, top politicians have spoken at APAC. Donald Trump spoke at AIPAC during his Run for president. And so basically, what's happened is not that there's been a shift in American policy, but simply as with white supremacy, that in the US, that strain that has always been there has just become more overt. Mm-hmm. And so that has manifested in more overt support for Israel's claim to a united Jerusalem as its capital.
0: Right. Obviously, this region is extremely diverse. You have, of course, Muslim palestinians christian palestinians and of course uh there are a number of i guess different denominations or just like anywhere political orientations uh within israel are there any inner conflicts between the jewish communities because of course we probably all know that christian or muslim palestinians probably both oppose this what about israel are there some denominations i guess that or groups that oppose it and some are obviously in favor or what what, what's that landscape looking like
1: uh, the landscape is diverse it's it's difficult to get a clear understanding of it without, Sober reflection. In my opinion, the Israeli media is just as polarized, if not more, than the American media. You have, on the one hand, uh, the publication Hadetz, which has, you know, very strong English language international focus. It basically pivots itself, I think, quite successfully as the Israeli version of The Guardian. And it's really been a strong force of liberal media in Israel and around the world. On the other hand, you have many different news outlets that are just quite sensational as with any country and you have you know you have a newspaper in israel that is has direct ties to prime minister benjamin netanyahu Mm -hmm. and i can't speculate exactly to those ties i don't think he sits there himself you know writing articles for it um but you know people i spoke to in israel Just regular people on the street, people that I studied with when I was at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, scholars there all kind of spoke about that issue, you know, that being an issue of kind of the media landscape in Israel. And so basically what you have is... um, Kind of to put the spotlight on Netanyahu very briefly, he has, you know, a very strong orthodox and right-wing coalition. One that is actually, many would say, further to the right than his own Likud party. But in order to maintain power, he needs to maintain the support of his coalition. So again, going back to domestic Israeli politics, seeking out the legitimacy of the Israeli claim to Jerusalem by having the U.S. move its embassy is a very good move for a prime minister that has taken a lot of shit from the Israeli media, from opposing politicians, for someone who's been embroiled in multiple uh, legal scandals in the past couple of years as well. So, you know, this this again is just one of those strains that's always existed Mm -hmm. and like now was just a really good time for it to happen for him.
0: Right. Yeah. Is there is there anyone within, you know, Israeli parliament, I guess you can say, that also opposed Netanyahu by praising Trump for making his statements at all? Well, so Netanyahu supports
1: decision. He always has. Right. He's been he had a bad relationship with Obama because Obama wanted to maintain a very liberal in the classical sense of the term. Two-state solution. Yeah, he wanted to maintain kind of the fixed two-state solution that has been a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy since Jimmy Carter. Right. You know, since uh, the war with Egypt in the 70s, since Oslo, since, you know, when they actually came close to affirming an actual two-state solution and creating a viable Palestinian state. Uh, which involved heavy negotiations on both sides and heavy mediation from the US in the 1990s. despite all that, there yeah, there are there are of course people in the Knesset and the Israeli Parliament that, have opposed this. I mean, the Israeli Labour Party, which has been in shambles for a very long time, one would argue, since the assassination of Yitzhak Karabin, the kind of the prime minister who was seen as the one who would finally bring peace in the early 90s, you know, they had a very tumultuous time of many elections and prime ministers rotating in and out every year or two, and that wasn't good for anyone in the 90s. But there are Arab parties in the Israeli parliament. Uh, one yeah. needs to remember that. So there's, you know, there will always be voices against any moves to legitimize Israel's sole claim to the land of biblical Israel to the detriment of the land of Palestine. Right. So some of the voices now, some of the more moderate voices in Fatah, for example, in the West Bank and uh, among Arab civil society in Israel are calling for a pivot, more to support a one-state solution, which has for a long time been a unpopular one and mostly a fringe academic kind of potentially utopian vision. But I think one which really merits more attention is basically one state between the Jordan River and the sea where all people have equal rights. And mm-hmm. now this upsets the people who see Israel as a fundamentally Jewish state because it's in their constitution to be a Jewish state. And if you allow... Arab-Palestinians, the same degree of cultural autonomy and political authority within the same borders, the state is no longer inherently Jewish.
0: So, do you think Donald Trump is trying to get into Israel as a way to see how they build their wall for the Mexican border? I don't know if... Um,
1: <laughs> I don't know how, s- like, serious that claim is. Although, to be fair, you know, Netanyahu has openly invited Trump to come see the wall. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he did both say out loud and tweet our wall is really good yeah like come see our wall and yeah i someone i think trump said you know israel builds great walls this is the template you know it's important to know i spoke about the wall earlier and the uh the real impact it has on palestinian people's lives this wall is taller than the berlin wall ever was right and probably um, taller than trump's
0: wall will ever be it's
1: possible i don't actually <laughs> know the details of trump's wall yeah um, though I probably should because it is progressively becoming a more real thing. Right. So the wall is very tall. Um, it has barbed wire at the top. In places where there aren't walls because they never completed the wall containing the entire West Bank, and the wall actually intrudes into the West Bank, mm-hmm. defying the established international borders between the West Bank and Israel proper and kind of containing many Jewish settlements in the West Bank, you know, obviously for security purposes, like, that makes sense from the perspective of Israel, since they have civilians living there, but, yeah, the electric fences, the wall, everything, it's, like, extreme security measures, Mm -hmm. Um, so it is... There are fundamentally opposed views on this wall, you know, that which are manifest in the very nature, the very way people describe it in Israel. It is a security barrier in Palestine. It is a
0: separation wall. Yeah. And for the fact that it's such a separation wall and it inhibits so much of regular Palestinian life, Do you think they view the uh, movement of the embassy to Jerusalem as the same way or not to the same degree?
1: This is all part of the same machine that has existed since the occupation began 50 years ago. You know, this year is the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War in which Israel occupied what was previously Jordanian-occupied West Bank. And going back to the historical dynamics, you know, the Palestinian people got a shaft because when the War of Independence for Israel happened, when the occupation happened, no one was thinking of the Palestinian people specifically as a viable independent nation worthy of attention. When the Arab states invaded Israel, when they declared independence, it was in order to acquire more land for their own kind of pan-Arab national interests. You know, Syria wanted part of the action. Jordan, Egypt, for a long time, was kind of seen as like the head of this pan-Arabic nationalist movement. You know, this was before islamism had really taken hold this was when kind of liberal nationalism was seen as the way to go basically this is all part of the same thing Mm. Um, it's a multi-headed hydra it is a a a system of control that is physical political cultural ideological Mm. and the support of the two-state solution has always kind of overlooked the details of life for the Palestinian people and in trying to construct a Palestinian state it has not looked at measures that would actually improve the lives of many of the people who have too much greater degree do not have an economic independence or they have a worse economic situation and again there's huge disparities across the land you know there's differences majorly between Gaza and West Bank. There's differences within the West Bank. The West Bank has its own middle class. It mm-hmm. has its own political ruling class, of course. There's huge diversities that I can only brush the surface of.
0: And they're both ruled basically by two different groups,
1: correct? Yeah, like I said before, Hamas rules Gaza de facto, right, even yeah. though the Palestinian Authority, which was governing a structure created by the Oslo Accords in the 90s to kind of transition into Palestinian self-rule... It's supposed to be one entity that governs all the territories, but because of the physical separation, it's basically impossible for Fatah to exert any real control over the Gaza Strip. And so Fatah and Hamas fight all the time, and then they have, you know, they're like an old couple that's been fighting forever. Uh, They just fight and they disagree, and then they have uh, reconciliation meetings and unity meetings, and then, you know... Uh, principles get violated and back to fighting so
0: so even among uh, the two groups basically within the whole Palestinian movement there's they butt heads it's
1: important to say if you're really speaking about a Palestinian movement you have to go into civil society and you have to look at Israel-Palestine as kind of an entity that by the nature of this occupation has brought this uh, land mass into being one unit because the two are so dependent on one another you know Israel is dependent on the labor the cheap labor from Palestine they're dependent on the land for security for outside nations they're dependent on the land for internal security and at the same time you know Palestine is dependent on Israel for many of their services and infrastructure you know it's kind of like Ukraine's gas lines being tied to Russia sure you know yeah. it's very similar to that they they I- Israel can turn the lights off. They can turn the water off right. if they want. Yeah. And they did yeah. when the Intifada happened, uh, the second one, especially in the in the early 2000s. So,
0: And, of course, Israel has more resources to do that, especially with how prominent they are in the tech sector as well.
1: Yeah, the tech sector is huge. You know, the uh, military-industrial sector thinks largely to U.S. military aid every year. They've built a world-class military, for sure. They've built a world-class tech sector. You know, Israel is considered the startup capital of the world, you know, outdoing Silicon Valley, for sure. Technion has recently... Uh, ranked above MIT as an innovation university. Well, that
0: says something, yeah.
1: Um, and so from that aspect, for sure, Israel, its development has really made it shine, and its development has been both the cause and the effect of the occupation. Right. Um, and so there was a question beforehand that I was going to get to about the right Palestinian civil society, So when you look at the fact that Israel has developed this infrastructure for itself, this technological apparatus in order to keep the occupation going, many Palestinians whose government they see as corrupt or incompetent or simply unable to really do anything to change the situation, yeah, okay, they're competent enough at just governing the territories, but they're not really, they don't have the political or physical or social capital to really bring about massive change that would put an end to the occupation. And so civil society has flourished in this space where, uh, I guess, formal political channels have failed. And this kind of goes back uh, again to the main point, which was when I said that I was fearful that many states would really sit back and not do anything and that extremists would kind of seize the day in fighting against what they see as this continuing conflict of national, religious, ethnic, every sort of conflict under the sun. There is also a silver lining because a Palestinian civil society that is strong and vibrant and by necessity has evolved to become separate from the political channels and the military channels, you know, is able to exert some autonomy and influence people and kind of shed some light and keep providing hope to people. And so I remember when I was in the West Bank, I spoke to a peace activist um, and he told me a story about when he was doing school tours and speaking to children, and he asked this little girl who was seven years old what she wanted to be when she grew up, and she said, "I want to be a martyr wow, yeah right and that was what made him get out of bed every day to kind of say, "Well, look, yes, our people have suffered many injustices and but at but at the end of the day, it's about us." Making our lives better. Right um, and self improvement and self empowerment. And so while radical elements will definitely seize the day, for sure, you know, there are also other elements in society, very diverse groups with different interests. And it's just too early to say what will really happen for yeah. sure because yeah. of this embassy move.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Phil, for joining me. Uh that was more than enlightening. And this has been Mark Jarrett of the Marxism Podcast, joined by Phil Rafalco today. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this and learned something Uh, please like share subscribe retweet and all that good stuff that helps me out or not it is a free country after all Uh, just a friendly reminder from the last episode I am now on iTunes so go download that for your morning commute or anything else that involves some time to yourself anyways uh, thank you and we are out of here